I can head back there to be with our, our team and I want to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles. We're going to have a great time also in God's Word this morning. So we'll be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided there for you in the rows, it's page uh, 817. Actually, make that 818. We'll be in Matthew 12, starting in verse 46. And uh, my name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill. And it has been a great uh, season for us as a church coming out of Easter, celebrating our uh, second anniversary. I mean, our second anniversary. Where, where am I? Fourth anniversary. Uh, it was second week that was crazy. I think that's what I was thinking. Um, yeah, fourth anniversary last week. And so listen, um, in, in any way that you were a part of that, uh, whether you were praying, whether you were serving, which is probably more than half of the people in the room, I uh, just want to say thank you on behalf of our leadership team. I know a lot of work went into that uh, those weeks. So thank you for serving and uh, being a part of the mission together. And I also just want to send uh, greetings to Dane and Jeremy and Johnny. These guys, we're excited about what God's going to do in Belmont, praying for great things. That's our, that's our attitude. God can do great things. So we should pray for that and expect that. So we look forward to seeing how he's going to work in Belmont in the coming years. Uh, so uh, it is, it is uh, almost Patriots Day, right? Patriots Day is tomorrow. Marathon Monday is tomorrow. And it's always one of the ex most exciting days of the year in Massachusetts. Hopefully you agree with that. Um, what, what makes it so exciting is you, you have the marathon, right, where um, thousands of, of runners are going to line up in Hop Hopkinton, and they're going to chart that course, 26.2 miles uh, to the finish line on Boylston Street. And you know that uh, literally thousands of people are going to line the course from Hopkinton to Boston to cheer these runners on. I mean, we have the early game going at Fenway Park. It is a festive day in Boston. And of course, with the events of two years ago, the tragic and horrific marathon bombings, uh, this day now becomes different for us, right? It becomes an opportunity to uh, display our resiliency as a city that we are going to continue to come together uh, for such a great event. Now, um, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not much of a runner. I mean, how many runners do we have in here? Raise your hand. Just be honest. You love running. Well, you love it. Okay, that's like 2%, all right? Who doesn't love to run? Anybody raise your hand? There we go, that's right. That's, that's me, okay, that's me. I ain't gonna lie about it. Some of you are saying, well, Tanner, you're an athlete. Um, I was an athlete, all right? And, and now I'm not much of an athlete, but, but even back in the day, you know, back in the glory days, I, I still didn't like to run. I can't tell you a time where I've ran over four or five miles at once uh, in my life. I can run up and down a basketball court all day long. Well, I used to could, uh, but, but, but running was just never, never my thing. And that's why I think I have such a deep admiration and respect for these people, these crazy, insane people who trained for months to build up the physical perseverance and the mental toughness to run a marathon. 26 miles. Just think about that for a moment. That's, that, is, that is insane. That's testing the limits of, of what our body can handle. And yet, uh, thousands of people are going to do it tomorrow. Well, can you imagine if you had trained for the marathon your entire life and you were the woman that was leading the race clearly with the, the finished tape in front of you, you're going to feel, feel the exhilaration of completing the race first place and only to discover that someone slipped onto the course in the latter part of the race 
and finished ahead of you. Now, this might sound unfathomable to you, but this actually happened last week at the St. Louis Marathon. There was a lady named Andrea Kirk. Uh, she was a grad student or a recent grad student at, the, at Washington University. Uh, she should have been the one to break the tape. She should have been the one to receive the gold medallion, to have her picture taken with Jackie Joyner, uh, Kersey, I believe. Uh, but, but it was this, this other lady, this, this devious uh, lady um, named, uh, let me get it right here. Um, yeah, that, she looks like a, no, this is not a joke, right? Doesn't she look like a... A villain, huh? I mean, even in, <laughs> even in the picture. Uh, her name is Kendall Schler. You can just look it up. I'm just going to tell you her name. You can read it online. And, and she apparently broke into the course in the later stage of the race and finished well ahead of Andrea. Now, how did they discover this? Well, um, number one, there was no evidence of her starting the race when they checked their records. Um, th- there was um, no photographic proof of her being on the earlier stages of the course, and there was no timing uh, 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 strip on her runner's bib that all runners have in the race. So uh, they said, unless you can prove to us that you were on the course uh, earlier in the race, your, your uh, award is going to be stripped from you, and we're going to give it to Andrea Kirk. And for some of you that have been around Boston for a while, you can remember the 1980 marathon when Rosie Ruiz also pulled this, uh, this heist, if you will, um, in Boston. So, um, so, so uh, Schleier here, she completely cheated the system. Just shake your head, right? I mean, just look, this is, she completely cheated the system by entering the course at a different point in the race. Apparently, she missed the proverb that we learn as kids, uh, winners never cheat and cheaters never win. And so, listen, when you, when you check out the marathon tomorrow, whether you're going down to the race to cheer on the runners, whether you're just turning on the news for a few moments, I want you to consider this. There is a course that is the proper course that the runners must run in the race. And as you think about that, I want you to consider the analogy that we even find in the Bible that God has actually set a path. He has set a course before us to run life according to his intentions. The Bible says this in in many places, um, in all your ways acknowledge God and he will make straight your paths, Proverbs 3, 6. What about Hebrews 12, 1? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so the question we must ask ourselves this morning is this, are, are we running our race in life on God's course? Are we seeking to to follow the path that he has set before us, or are we picking and choosing the parts of the race that we want to run? Are we entering his course in a way that he has not prescribed? See, what I love about God is he joyfully invites us to be on his path, and he wants us to devote all of our lives to experiencing the joy that is set before us by running his race. Last week, we looked at the one life of Zacchaeus, if you remember, this this tax collector who had his life completely transformed. And now this week, we're going to not just examine one life, but we're going to look at all of our lives and how all of our life should be run for God according to his design. 
So the question becomes, how can we do that? How can we run God's race according to his design? And it's, it's, it's quite simple, really. We practice the will of God in all of life. It's that simple. Practice the will of God in all of life. Now, to, to illustrate this and to, to explain uh, what we mean by that, I've chosen two passages, okay? You that have been around redemption know we normally don't do two passages in one sermon, but, but there are two passages in the Gospel of Matthew that explain to us what it looks like to be running God's race in his will, and one is going to show us that, that when we practice the will of God, it reveals the relationship that we should be enjoying with God, but then the second passage will show us how that whether or not we practice the will of God is is actually revealing what's going on in our heart. So number one, we're going to see in Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50, that we must practice the will of God because it reveals our relationship with God. Read these verses with me, if you will. This is what uh, the Gospel of Matthew says. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now just picture what's going on here. Jesus is teaching. And when Jesus teaches, the crowds gather, okay? He was, he was a wise teacher. He was dropping that sage wisdom on the crowd, okay? He was dropping his divine teaching, gathering more and more people around him to hear his uh, words of wisdom and truth. And so it's little wonder that because of the crowd, his family, who wanted to catch a little sidebar with him, couldn't get in to kind of grab his attention. So they flag another man down, and he comes over to Jesus like, hey, Jesus, psst, like, can you call a timeout here? I know you're kind of rolling here, but like, we need, you, your family is outside, and they need, to, they need to, to speak with you for just a few moments. Could you hit pause on your teaching? And Jesus, to this request, this question answers that question with a couple of other questions. And what we love about the master teacher, Jesus, is that he actually continues teaching with his questions. And so Jesus asks them, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? You see, his his earthly family didn't always understand what Jesus was about, who he was. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 5, we see that his brothers did not believe in him. This is prior to his crucifixion and resurrection. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, it even says that, that his, his family thought he was out of his mind, all of this teaching and all of the things that he was doing. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to teach the crowds an important lesson about um, the spiritual family that God is uh, creating in uh, our world. So we should ask this question, what does it mean to do the will of God? If Jesus says, whoever does my will is part of my family, what does it mean to do the will of God? And we could say that to perform God's will is to align our lives with his desires for us. 
It is to get on board with his intentions, his design for our lives. And we find who God is and what his will is in this book that we call the Bible. We discover his will. We discover what he desires for us as we open up this pa- the pages of this divinely inspired book. And so, so many times, listen, if you're like me, and so many times, I know you've been there, we, we want to kind of ask God the questions. We want to kind of judge him by our own standards. And so we kind of put God on trial, if, 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 you, if you will. But what we find is this. C.S. Lewis said it so well. He said this, what we are to make of Christ, there is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. That is the issue. So maybe you're here and you're kind of sorting out what I want to make of you, God, what I want to make of what you're asking uh, me to do in my life. But the real question is, what does God want to make of you? Who, who does he want to turn you into that I can tell you is so much better than the version you have of yourself? So doing the will of God is, is evidence of the most intimate of relationships, If you love God, if you follow God's ways, you are a part of his family. And let's be clear here. Jesus is not degrading earthly family. He's not demeaning his family in any way, all right? We're going to see just a few chapters later, he's going to reinforce the teaching, you should honor your father and your mother, okay? So Jesus means no disrespect or dishonor to his mother at all in this situation. What he's doing is taking opportunity to elevate God's spiritual family. What does it mean to have an even more intimate relationship than the earthly relationships you enjoy is to enjoy a spiritual relationship with the God who made you in the first place? So we can have, and some of you uh, know this too well, we can have earthly family that is not a part of our spiritual family. And that can be one of the, the most difficult realities in life. And we talk about this at Redemption Hill. We talk about this in our community groups, right? So, so the question becomes, does our commitment to Christ lead us to love our family less? By no means, right? I mean, we, we actually, because of our commitment to Christ, we end up loving our family more. Just like we love all people more, right? So, so God's love redefines our love, and we start loving other people differently, including our own family. But what we're praying for is that our earthly family would become also part of our spiritual family as followers of Christ, and this is the greatest gift. So if you find yourself in that boat today, don't don't stop praying, don't stop uh, seeking to love your family, to honor them in all the ways that you can. But what Jesus is saying is that there is a supreme allegiance. Anytime our earthly family would would call us away from following Christ, from doing his will, then we must always count God supreme and elevate that most intimate of relationships. So Jesus says, to practice the will of God, it reveals our relationship with God. But then number two, practicing the will of God also reveals our heart before God. Move forward to Matthew chapter 21. Just flip a few pages with me. We're going to see a parable here that starts in verse 28 
Uh, it's the parable of the two sons. Now, what is a parable? A parable is a, a short story that conveys spiritual truths. And so Jesus here is interacting with the religious leaders, and he is explaining what life is like in his kingdom to these people who everyone thinks they get it, and Jesus knows they really don't yet understand. So he tells this parable to them, and he asks again a question to grab their attention. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he had another son, and he, he said the same to him, and he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So we have this story of, of one father with two sons. And this would have been a common request. Israel was filled with vineyards all over the place. That's why Jesus frequently used this imagery in his teachings. And the father says to the first son, hey, son, would you go and work for me today in the vineyard? And he says, you know what, dad, I've got some other things going on here. I'm a little busy. I don't have time to, to, to do what you want me to do. And in the first century, this would have been a slap in the face of the father. It would have been. I mean, we're not talking like, you know, a dad receives that and he's like, well, I brought you into the world. I can take you out of it kind of a statement, all right? You know, like we hear sometimes, maybe say sometimes. This, is, this would have been a deep bruise to the father. I will not honor you. That's what he was saying. I will not honor the loving relationship that we enjoy. But the second son, he goes to the second son and the second son, man, I got you, dad. I'm going to go be about my business, which is your business. I mean, I'm going to take care of things just like you want it. But what happens? The first son says he won't go, but he does go. And the second son says he will go, but he doesn't go. And did you see the, the, the bold and stark comparison that Jesus brings to these religious leaders, the ones who appear to, to do it all and have it all right? He says that, that they are like the second son. They're like the ones that, that honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from God. And yet, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, these despicable people in the eyes of most in, in the society, um, they, they, they initially don't obey God, but afterwards they change. And Jesus says, they are entering in before you to the kingdom of God. So what do we learn from this story? Number one, we can look right on the outside, but not be right on the inside. We can talk a good game, but as my uh, coaches in basketball used to say, talk is cheap. There you go. Did you play for Coach Fisher too? No, it's good. Appearance does not always equal reality. 
God is after our actions. He doesn't just want our intentions or our lip service. He wants us to follow through. He is examining our hearts. I was reading in the Proverbs this week. I kind of jumped back in. Sometimes, you know, there's 31 chapters in Proverbs, so it's a great practice just to read a proverb a day, and I haven't done that in several months, and so I just jumped back in this week, and Proverbs 15, it says that the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests hearts. And then a few verses later, it says that the Sheol and Abad and the, 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 the afterlife and, 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 and even hell, it is open before the Lord. He sees everything. There's nothing that he can't see. And then he says, and so are the hearts of men. He sees into our lives where no one else can see. God sees it all. I like what one New Testament scholar said, uh, what counts is not promise, but performance. And so just ask any spouse in the room, are the wedding vows that are said on day one of any marriage, are they really, really important? Absolutely. But what happens on day 10,001? What is really, really important is that you are living those vows out. It's not enough to have good intentions. It's not enough to say, hey, we're going to take care of that, but not follow through. So God is looking into your heart today. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know where you've been this week. I don't have a camera that follows everyone around, and neither do do you me. But I can tell you that God wants all of our heart. He doesn't want our lip service. So that's why, number two, we must respond in active obedience to the will of our loving Father. He invites us to work. He invites us to get in the game. And and what a shame it would be if we looked at God and we declined the opportunity to be about his business. You say, well, Tanner, how how do we miss it? How do we we miss being about God's business? Here's just a couple of categories for you, okay? Number one, there are sins of omission. Okay, sins of omission, meaning we omit or we set aside the good things that we know we ought to do. All right? So a lot of times we think about the Christian life is just, you know, God is up there and he's in charge and he's telling us what we can't do. Um, but, but actually, it's so much more than that. Really, there is a design, a race set before us, and there are things that he wants us to do. And so when we see um, commands like a speak up for injust- against injustice, or go the second mile, or pray for others. Those are all positive commands that we are to fulfill, and when we fail to fulfill those as God leads us, okay, as he leads us, then those are what we call sins of omission. We're holding back the good things that God wants us to do, and then, of course, there are also sins of commission. These are the sins that we commit against God's design for our lives. They are the bad things that God does not want us to do. And so God has given us clear commands in Scripture, but there is something about our hearts that we do not like to be told what to do, right? I mean, we live in a culture that is increasingly anti-authoritarian, man. I have my own life. I'm going to do it my way. I don't need your help, your guidance, your input, and I definitely don't need you to tell me what to do. And yet God is our loving Father. He sees the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And so it is, it is actually the most loving thing he could do to say, hey, you know, watch out right there. there there's a, there's a, a pothole in the road on this race that you're running, and you need to, to move over just a little bit and stay in this lane. 
So I want you to examine your life for just a moment. If you're saying, I want control, I want autonomy, I want to call my own shots, I just want to ask, why would you not follow God's ways? In what ways are you maybe failing to follow God's ways in your life? In what ways are you deviating from his, his game plan? We could look back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, chapters 5, 6, and 7. I would encourage you to read it this week. And we can just see how, man, this is, this is, a, this is a very a high calling we have as those who follow Christ. Jesus would tell us there, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. We live in the richest country in the world. Sometimes we don't want to hear that, right? Don't, don't weigh in on the purchases that I'm going to make here. Don't, don't look at my bank account and see how much I'm giving, rather how much I'm spending on myself. What about this? Love your enemies and pray for them. It's like, no, no, Jesus, man, I, don't get up in my space about that, all right? Like, I'm going to love people who love me. I'm not going to love my enemies. Like, who does that? The one who hung on the cross for his enemies, which was us. What about this one? Even if you look lustfully at a woman, not just, not just physically committing the act, but, but even looking lustfully in your heart, you, you've already entered into adultery, in our sensual culture, we don't like that one too much. Give to the poor. Somebody like me, I'm Tanner, you can kind of cool it here. Like, I'll go read it for myself later. You can stop right. Let me continue. Uh, devote yourselves to prayer. Not for the praise of people, not so other people can look at me. What a, what a, what a great spiritual person he or she is. Fast. Give up things in your life so that you can... Focus on God and devote yourself to him and exercise good works as you give those things up. And we could add a host of others to that. Count others better than yourself. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. Listen to those who wish to rebuke you. Encourage one another daily. Do not neglect meeting together. When we fail to keep God's commands, we are essentially saying, I will not go there to the vineyard, or I will go, but we just simply step back and let someone else do the work. And if our attitude before God would say, God, you, you, you do not know what's best for me. I'm not going to follow your game plan. The Bible would just simply tell us we are fools. We are, we are foolish in the ways that, that he has set before us, for us to, 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 to resist that is to follow the path of folly. So let me ask you do, you, do you like for God to tell you what to do? Are you on board with that? Are you listening to him? Are you opening up his word daily to, to follow his ways? I mean, perhaps, listen, let me just be very frank. Perhaps this is what is keeping some of you from following Christ in the Christian life. You say, you know what, man, I like a lot of things about Christianity. I like that love piece. I like serving others. And I like, you know, ministry to the poor and these social justice issues of stopping sex trafficking. I mean, there are a lot of good things about Christianity, but, but Jesus, don't tell me how to live my life. And, and, and that's keeping you from entering into the kingdom of God. But then there, there are those of us who love Christ, who are seeking to, to live our lives for him, and yet 
our resistance to follow him in all of our ways is keeping us from thriving. It's keeping us from experiencing the full joy and abundant life that he wants for us. And so let me just ask you this morning, what what is holding you back? Whether you are considering entering into the Christian life or whether you are continuing in the Christian life, what's holding you back? Is it pride? God, I know best. God, I've got, I've, got, I've got the perspective on this one. Like, I agree with you here, here, and here, but, but, but I really know what's, what's best here. And so it's pride. And God is saying, look, I am wise. I know the best path for you. Perhaps it is fear. And I can identify with, with this one. I mean, perhaps it is difficult for you to surrender control. Just to hand it over and say, you know what? I, I, I am going to surrender the rights to my life and, and, and how I am going to live to you. But listen, not only is God wise, he is also good. I never ask my children to do anything that would not be for their good, even when it's like the fifth candy bar of the night. You feel, you feel me, right? And this is how we are. This is how we are as people too. Perhaps it is too costly I've spoken with multiple people over the past couple of weeks who are considering the gospel, and and they seem to be very close. I mean, they get it. They understand that that God created them uh, for a life like the one that we're describing today, and that we all have deviated. We've all entered course at at wrong points, and yet Jesus died on the cross for those sins, for for our deviation from God's will. And yet, what what they're considering is, is it really worth it? Is it that will I really be willing to give up those things in my life that don't look like Jesus? And so if that's you today, I just wanna say God is better. He's better than anything you could ever give up. You cannot have all the money in the world. You couldn't have all the prestige and, 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 and popularity and power. You couldn't have experience all the pleasure that the world has to offer. It, it will never satisfy you, okay? Just, I just tell people all the time, just go and try to live that life and see if you're ultimately satisfied. You're, you, you won't be. It's proverbial. Uh, death, death is never satisfied, and, and neither are the eyes of men. We always want more, always want more, but because we were not made for those things. We were made for God. God is wise, God is good, God is better. And now let me flip that to say, okay, if if this is what maybe is holding us back from living the Christian life, then what might propel us to run the race with more consistency and more fervor and more uh, speed, perhaps? And I would just give you a few encouragements. Number one, walk together. Do do this together. When, When you see your friends actually sacrificing of their time to serve others, does that not compel you just a little bit? Like, man, that's a really good idea. I see how valuable that is. I see, I see the kind of joy that they experience. I'm gonna get in on that as well. How others walk along the path affects how we walk, and how we walk along the path affects how others walk as well. So we need to walk together. We need to do do this together. Change occurs among other people. It seems real, one one person said, when we can see it in another person's eyes. That's good. I mean, I'm thankful to be a part of a church that gets this. I'm I'm thankful when I I hear someone who is is, uh, just understanding more of, of God's word and, 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 and their, their knowledge of the word encourages me to open up my Bible again and, and dig a little deeper. 
or I'm encouraged when someone uh, has a heart for the poor and, and they're spending time with those who really need a helping hand, not only materially, but also emotionally and spiritually. And so that compels me to want to spend my time in those same ways. Thank you for compelling me to stay on the path. That's what a church is about. So now we walk together, but we also need to walk ready, okay? We, we talked about this earlier. The, the war is real. The battle is real. It's difficult to stay on the path. There will be opposition. There will be old desires that creep up from within, and there will be temptations from without. And so we need to be on alert. We need to, to, to run with our head up, ready to see any obstacles that would come our way. And then number three, we need to walk dependent, okay? Everything that I'm exhorting us to today on loving and, and serving and being pure and, and following God in all of his ways, listen, we cannot do that. You can't do it apart from God's grace. You can't do it apart from God's strength. Listen, we said it. God's grace by his spirit gives us life and gets us into the race. Now we're qualified with the bib on to legit run in God's race, but God's grace also, the spirit in us now gives strength for every stride on the race course. So don't try to do this in your own strength. If you do, you will just get frustrated and worn out and fatigued. But, but God fills us with his strength to live for him. And so let's conclude by looking back at verses 31 and 32. Jesus speaks to these religious leaders and he indicts them by saying that the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. And then he, he, he makes sure that he is very clearly understood because in verse 32, he says, you remember John the Baptist? That crazy guy out in the wilderness saying you need to change because the kingdom of God is coming soon. And they would have to remember their experience going out into the wilderness and seeing John the Baptist and hearing his message. And he says, you know what? You have a twofold problem here. Okay, number one, you heard his message and you could, have, you could not have heard it and, and, and looked within and say, you know what? Man, I am pure before God. I have it all together before God. There, there is no reason that God shouldn't pat me on the back when I stand before him and, and give, all of heaven will give a hand because I am so pure. I'm so perfect. No one would have been thinking that. No, these, these religious leaders, they knew they weren't pure on the inside, and yet they didn't change. But Jesus doesn't stop there. I love the end of verse 32. It hit me uh, in a whole new way this week. It says this, and, and even when you heard it, when the tax collectors and the prostitutes, when they believed and changed, it says, and even when you saw their change, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? There's a progression. A, you heard the message and you didn't change. But not only that, you saw the message. You saw people like Zacchaeus who uh, were tax collectors and robbing people. Now they're giving generously to people. You saw the prostitutes who were sleeping around with countless men. Now they're chaste. They're faithful to one spouse. And yet you saw the radical change that I bring to them. And yet you still refuse to change yourself and follow after me. And so at Redemption Hill, we constantly talk about we need to 
declare the message of the gospel and receive the message of the gospel, but we also need to display the message of the gospel with our lives and live out the message of the gospel with our lives. And so it always has to be a both and. And as we share the word and as we show the word, then prayerfully people are going to see that and they're gonna want to be compelled to believe and follow after God's course with their lives. And so as we wrap up our time, let me just say this. Um, You might say, man, Jesus is coming pretty hard down on the religious leaders here. Do Do you not think if Jesus opened his arms to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, that he would not keep his arms open for the self-righteous and those who think they have it all together. He absolutely keeps his arms open. And so no matter where you are today and, and how you are practicing the will of God, listen, Jesus' arms are open for you. He is inviting you into the course that brings maximum joy. He is inviting us in to enter his kingdom. And his kingdom is not like the, the, the kingdom of, of earth. It's not like the city of Boston where we have all of these, this brokenness around us. It is a place of flourishing and thriving and, and wholeness. So no matter where you are today, not yet a believer in Christ, believer in Christ for many years, Jesus invites you to continue to, to enter his kingdom so that you can experience not just a medallion or a prize reward, but but eternal and everlasting joy. There's nothing better than this. Let's pray together. God, thank you.